left, by the door. There are over 4 million working-aged blind and visually impaired people in the United States. And over 2 million of these people are unemployed. This is a staggering statistic, but many people defy these odds and are happily and gainfully employed, and we wish to share their stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Vision Toward Success, the podcast that highlights stories of career development and lived experience. This podcast is brought to you by the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. In our program, we feature employment success stories from visually impaired individuals for people with disabilities and their allies, in hopes of showing just how smart, hardworking, and capable this diverse community is. Hello, and welcome to Vision Toward Success. My name is David Gonzalez, and today we are here with Chris Downey, an architect who found accessibility to play a big role in his profession. Now, we will hear from our interviewer, Shaheem Sutherland, and our guest, Chris Downey. Good afternoon, Chris. My name is Shaheem Sutherland. I'm working with the Polis Center and MCB as an intern. Um, it's nice to meet you. It's nice, nice to meet you, Shaheem. So for the first step of this interview, i like to start off with introductions, let the listeners know um, who you are and what you do. Okay. Uh, my name is Chris Downey. I'm an architect located in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and I, I work as an architect, um, licensed architect, and I specialize in primarily in projects for the blind and visually impaired, such as schools for the blind and visually impaired, uh, agencies serving the blind. We also do a lot of work with eye centers in, in the healthcare setting. Uh, a good bit of work in transportation and also in technology space as more and more technology companies are hiring people with disabilities and uh, get involved with a number of various projects in that space. Nice. Now, when you work on these buildings as an architect, um, you focus on making the buildings accessible for people with a visual impairment, correct? That's my primary focus. Uh, I tend to uh, consult on it from a, a broader spectrum of universal design, uh, trying to design things sort of sort of be in a level beyond code to make them more universally accessible to people with all sorts of differences. Uh, but obviously, I do have a specialty in the area of the blind and visually impaired. That said, it's often not about sort of the traditional notion of accessibility. It's sort of taking the understanding of architecture and the architectural or environmental experience beyond the visual to think more about it in a multi-century way or from a non-visual or differently visioned uh, uh, perspective. See, I actually didn't know that. Thank you for um, clarifying that for me. You have a visual impairment yourself. Are you comfortable speaking on that? Sure. Uh, I'm I'm fully blind myself. I uh, have no light perception, uh, and I lost my sight back in 2008, uh, and it went from full sight, effectively from full sight to no sight in the matter of uh, surgical procedure. But uh, uh, it's been 
irreversible, and it is uh, what it is. And and so I've sort of reinvented my career at that point. I was at the age of 45 and uh, reinvented both how I worked and the type of work I did uh, that I worked on, trying to find uh, both appropriate ways to work, but also areas where my work could offer real and unique value uh, within those those types of projects. Yeah, I can only imagine how it affected you emotionally going from a fully sighted world to a completely different world of no sight. Um, it must have been a lot to take on. I don't want to make little of that transition and the, the circumstances with that, but there's an awful lot of things about it uh, that gave me a different perspective and somewhat of an unusual perspective and largely that my father had passed away from complications from brain surgery, which is similar to what I had had. And he was 36 at the time and I was seven. So there I was 45, my son was 10. Uh, I had surgery to remove a brain tumor and I didn't lose my life. To me, I was like, oh, I just lost my sight. <laughs> it was like, it could have been a heck of a lot worse. And it gave me a really different perspective and, and uh, a passion for being, you know, still being there with my family, with my son and wanted, you know, I wanted to be every bit of a dad uh, and a function, you know, fully functioning quickly, returning uh, to, to work and, and to, the li to life in a robust way. You know, I, I really respect that. Instead of looking at the the downside of things, you looked at the ups, you know. Yeah, you know, to you, it's I only lost my sight. I could have lost much worse. <laughs> and, you know, I completely agree. So after going through that change, how did it affect your work life? Uh, I can only imagine the challenges you had to face working in such a, you know, difficult field where to most people, it may seem like you need sight to um, do most things. Yeah, no, I had never met uh, a blind architect, had never heard of one, uh, and didn't know anybody that was blind. So I had nothing but question marks all around that proposition, but I had had over 20 years of experience in the profession and knew there was an awful lot that I could do in the profession without sight. Uh, you know, I'd had my own firm, I've been principals in other firms. So I had a lot of confidence, a lot of experience, and I knew there was much that I could do. The question was really more about how I could be more uh, engaged within the creative aspects, within the design realm of, of the, the practice. And that was where the real question mark was. So I actually continued working. I was back in the office a month after the surgery I hadn't even started my rehabilitation training yet, but I wanted to get back in to start trying to figure it out. And the the great thing, you know, the counterintuitive thing about uh, being an architect and losing your sight is that it is a creative field. And in the creative fields and in the education we get, you get a you you learn to value different perspectives, different ways of looking at the same problem. Uh, and and even needing to go to those different places and find ways to look at problems differently so you can f solve the really interesting, really uh, you know, uh, elusive problems. So it was almost like yeah, this is perfect. And, and the people around me, the people I was working with, they were creative people. They were optimistic, positive uh, people that 
they kind of were intrigued by the prospect. And, you know, they were uh, really eager to work with me to really find a meaningful, uh, engaging way to continue working. Now, those people that supported you, it's amazing. And how did you deal with or how did you what did you think about towards the people who doubted you saying, you know, oh, you can't do this. You're you're blind now, you know? Yeah, no, I, those were some of the, the least comfortable conversations I would have with uh, friends that were, you know, I knew as architects, many that I knew through grad school. You know, I had both a undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in architecture, and some of my friends that I had in graduate school, they were like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. I can't imagine. You know, this is, no, this is like, you could tell they would just, they couldn't wrap their head around it. Uh, I had others that were uh, more uh, op- opportunistic and optimistic about it, whether it was just about life in general. You know, somebody I was just with yesterday uh, who was somebody I worked, got to know professionally on a number of projects, and we got to be good friends and, and riding partners, cycling partners, before I lost my sight. And while I was still in the hospital, I came in to visit and saying, hey, I talked to a friend, his wife's blind. They ride, ride tandems. We're going to get out on a tandem together. And I was like, you're freaking crazy. Four months later, we were out on a tandem uh, riding. Uh, and, and having people like that, whether they were just, it was just about life uh, or being within the profession, uh, the woman who is the lead uh, architect, uh, founder of the firm I was with, she got it. She immediately is like, you know, I think you have an opportunity to really find a unique niche and sort of think about architecture in a rich and different way. And she was absolutely supportive uh, towards that. Yeah, it's extremely, it's nice having supportive friends, coworkers, family around you to, you know, keep you going, especially when things are rough and you're going through one of the most difficult times of your life. Yeah. I, I throw my family in that, even my son. Uh, he would, you know, some, some would, uh, you know, some kids could be terrified or, or put off by it. You know, our, my son and his friends, they were all keyed in on all the new technologies, all the different ways I was learning to do things. And, and, uh, my son, he, he learned Braille with me. He knows it visually. Uh, and then he also learned how to deal with voiceover, uh, with uh, screen readers, and to the point where one time he went to the computer lab at his school when he was still in his middle school, and he the only computer lab didn't have a mouse, and he sat down and got right to work. And the professor, the teacher came over and was like, don't you need a mouse? And he goes, no, I'm fine. <laughs> it's like, how do you do that? <laughs> so, he, so, so I just worked for my dad. <laughs> no. That's actually a good segue to our next question here. Architecture must be a difficult job being fully blind. And you spoke about how your friends and family were interested in the new technologies you used to complete your work. What assistive technologies did you use during those times? Right. Well, the key thing for me to work as an architect, you know, there's there's so much that are that's text based. that happens in the profession. So that's sort of within the sort of the wheelhouse of screen readers and voiceover. And, and uh, so they were just things I had to learn to do that. Uh, but so the text-based database stuff, that was straightforward. The more challenging part was the, the graphic 
world, and that still remains challenging. However, the uh, in terms of accessing the drawings, you know, I was quickly set up with a large format embossing printer, so I was I'm able to print drawings that the teams that I'm working with, other architects I was working with, they were drawing, uh, and then I could print them through my embossing printer, read the drawings that way, and comment on it. And you know, it seems to some extent, you know, it's like there, there's no way to this day, there's no way for me to draw myself in the computer uh, to to create create those drawings. But in reality, I was I was managing uh, the architectural office for the firm I was with, and uh, I was managing the work of others, and so I was reviewing their work, commenting on it, making suggestions, changes. I was running other things, uh, dealing with consultants and clients. So uh, I, I didn't spend a lot of time at that point actually doing the drawings myself. Uh, I was more about reviewing it. So having access to the drawing uh, gave me the ability to sort of be aware of what was happening in the projects, uh, in the design work, uh, and I could explore that with the people and make suggestions, help solve problems that way. Eventually sort of developed ways to draw myself on top of those embossed drawings by working with uh, wax sticks, which were really convenient because they're just like lines that you hold in your hands and you put down on the paper and they're, since they're wax and they're, you get them warmed up in your hand, they stick to the paper. So I could really just sketch right on top of the drawings they had to, explore other ideas to push things in. So I can do that to start a project, or I can do that to to respond to work that others are doing. So that became the interface. And since I work remote these days, I'm not in the office, and I consult with lots of firms around the country, uh, I'm able to then uh, photograph those sketches uh, and email them off to the firms that I'm consulting with or have Zoom calls, then they can, we can have a di more of a dynamic conversation as they're looking at the sketches uh, or, you know, we might be designing together in real time and I'm, I'm sort of doing things there that way. Uh, and I also should say that, you know, I do, uh, my wife was, uh, is also uh, trained as an architect and so we do a lot of work together and when they're, it's, even though I don't really have an office, the two of us work together and when I need, there's a lot of times where I end up on a Zoom call and they're showing something that everybody else can see, but because it's on a Zoom screen, I can't see it and I can't print that screen to be able to access it uh, and there wouldn't be time for it. So I've got those things, either they have to explain more precisely what's going on or have my wife or somebody else uh, you know, describe what's going on. Yeah, that must be really fun being able to work with your wife on potential projects. Uh, yeah, and I also think it's extremely impressive how you're able to assist your fellow coworkers, even on visual visual architects of buildings and be able to give your input and, you know, maybe changes and redesigns that you want to improve on. It's truly impressive. <laughs> so working in this field, you said you've never heard of or even seen a um, visually impaired person working in your field, correct? Actually, within a few months, 
in searching, it's like, surely there's got to be a blind architect out there. And it's like, like, just because you're an architect that doesn't give you a Superman's cape and say so you're impervious to ever going blind. Obviously, it's a challenge for students, kids that might be blind growing up. You know, at least historically, there would be a, a quite a barrier perceived uh, of a challenge of getting into the profession. But, you know, like myself, I couldn't have been the first one to lose my sight as an architect. And But, you know, without the you know, technological advances, you know, then it, there may not have been the means. Or if it's since it's more common sort of late uh, later in life as an age-related visual impairment, at some point, if you're in your mid 60s and you lose your sight it's you know, there's a big learning curve that might be hard to get harder to get through at that point uh but there's like there's got to be somebody else but and eventually i did find someone uh an architect in lisbon portugal uh that was blind and actually had lost his sight when he was finishing up his his uh thesis work to become an architect when he was in college and uh so i was able to connect with him within a few months and uh, via email, and we had a good email. So he was sort of mentoring me and uh, we were sharing a lot. And eventually we had a chance to meet in New York. He was going there for a conference that I was attending as well. So we, we got to have our first international conference of blind architects, uh, the two of us at a little table. And uh, <laughs> since have learned of others that are visually impaired. And I'm really thrilled that I've now have a group of students that are blind and, uh, or various levels of have various levels of visual impairment that are all in, in degrees and and accredited programs of architecture uh, ranging from Harvard to Georgia Tech to Texas University of Texas I think it's the one and uh, missing another student uh, no those are the three that I know of that are actively in programs today so uh, and and then I've also recalled and have been told stories of one of the more famous, iconic, sort of modern masters of architecture, uh, one of the most renowned architects, um, an architect by the name of uh, Louis Kahn, who was the dean at uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania. I always knew that in photographs of him, he had you know the classic sort of what they call the Coke bottle glasses, and. Uh, and then I talked with someone who knew the son of the the uh, director of the Kimball Art Museum, who had, was working with Louis Kahn to design their museum, and it was finished after he died. And he said his visual impairment was so uh, uh, severe at that time that he had to put his his face right up to the drawings to be able to to read the drawings. That he would just scan his head over the over the drawings and. The profession never talked about that. Uh, I'd never heard that before, uh, but this guy, you know, was given you know this uh, experience that he was told about uh, from somebody who knew who was there with him at the time, and that's sort of astounding to think that one of the most renowned architects of the modern era uh, was uh, visually impaired to that level. And I actually have visited some of his later that that project uh, that he was designing. Uh, when he when he passed away, and could really appreciate, could really recognize how he was designing things differently, and largely as a function of his visual impairment. Let me know if you agree with this or not, because you know, as someone who's lost their sight, has it given you 
the ability to see things from a different perspective at, when it comes to, you know, maybe drawings or something else. Uh, absolutely. And, and I do say that I'm a better architect now that I've lost my sight. Uh, my son was thrilled when it, there was a story that ran about me that had that as part of its sort of headline for the story. And then the uh, he was thrilled because he found on the Onion Reddit line that they picked up on it. Architect loses sight, says he got better at his job. <laughs> so I got I got some real street cred from my son on that one. And fond of saying that you know as as architects we it's it, everybody thinks of it as a visual impairment, and that includes the art as a visual profession, and that's largely the way the profession is taught and how the profession thinks of itself. Uh, but the architecture, the environments we design, it's not about the eyeballs in space. It's about the whole human body in space and what that experience is like, all the sensory experiences. And as I found, and largely as I was going through my orientation mobility training, I was, you know, on, on one hand, obviously learning those non-visual skills and lear learning how to use a cane, but, but I was also you know, it's, learning there's a lot to, uh, how to interpret the environment around me using different senses and different information and how yeah, I was being asked to interpret that, to use that to get around safely and effectively. But then I started thinking about how you could work with all that stuff more intentionally as opposed to being accidental in its outcomes. Uh, and and having that awareness of how you know, the from the blind and visually impaired experience uh, gave me that sort of unique insight on it, but also the appreciation of the broader reality of the human experience that it isn't as most uh, general practitioners in architecture think or people in general that you know there's there's like the normal human experience which is you know no disability, no impairment, everybody's perfect. And what about that is, is human? <laughs> you know, what, since when was that ever conceived as being like the, the absolute human condition? It's sort of forgetting about and, and dismissing all of the, the different experiences uh, that we all have, whether it's through impairment, uh, disabilities, or whatever, and, and really thinking about uh, and really becoming far more committed to that broader human condition as it exists for all of us and across the lifespan of our lives. So, um, yeah, it, it really changed my way of thinking about things, uh, thinking about the people that use the space, use the architecture, uh, and how we can more fully uh, uh, embrace and include the broader spectrum of, of the range of people possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, our differences is what makes us human. You know, even those of us who have disabilities, I myself and I'm legally blind. If we have the right, um, assistive technology, we can accomplish anything. I mean, look at you, this is living proof right here. We have a blind architect, <laughs> like it, it, it's amazing. You know, we, we can really do anything. We, we set our minds to. Yeah, absolutely. It, we need the opportunity. We need to be given that opportunity and allowed to do it. And and we ourselves need to have the the confidence and the frame of mind to uh, to 
to be creative ourselves and tenacious and finding ways to, to you know, hit yes as opposed to no and, and finding ways past those little barriers, finding different ways of working, different ways of thinking about it, uh, different ways of doing the same project. You know, it's hard to think about things that just can't be done. And even if you arrive at those, yeah, chances are it's just a matter of time. I agree. So currently the world and everyone's lives are being rampaged by the COVID-19. And it, it has affected all of us indeed. And how, how has it affected you and your work life? You know, oddly, uh, uh, last year, the, you know, the, the heart of the pandemic was my best year ever in terms of the business. Uh, I don't know what it was. <laughs> it was a lot of new work. Uh, a lot of uh, proposals went out and I was part of a lot of teams. We were very successful in getting these new projects and it was a very robust work year. I could barely keep up. I was just running crazy with all the work and, and keeping up with all the different clients, the different teams I was working with and different programs. And uh, I know it was, it was actually remarkably successful and incredibly exciting. Certainly leveraged the technology, the Zoom environment and all the other platforms. It became second nature. You know, we talked about already about some of the shortcomings within that sort of highly visual yet also acoustic experience, but could really push through that and got to a good way of working with all the different clients. And, you know, I also do used to do a lot of, before the pandemic, did a lot of travel, both uh, around the country and international travel, both for projects and also for speaking opportunities. And when nobody was traveling, then I had a lot less disruption and I could better focus in on the work. So um, that was helpful. So it was, uh, it was actually proved to be positive and it continues to be positive. And if, even through that, I found a good way to continue working and actually realized, you know, this thing about staying home and not having to commute into the office, I can save a lot of time, <laughs> get a lot more done. Uh, and that's actually kind of the interesting thing. I've heard it from other people with other disabilities, people that couldn't go to certain places because they were in a wheelchair. All of a sudden, they could go to meetings they couldn't go before because everybody was on Zoom. And so there was some, some leveling that came through that, but obviously some challenges. And some of, them, some of the interfaces, uh, some of the programs that I was running into, whether it was things like... Uh, Euro or uh, electronic whiteboards and stuff that were used on the screen, those those interfaces aren't were not accessible. I get sort of frustrated in that my in, my engagement is strictly audible, so it's hard for me to hear the information from the computer if I'm trying to do various things while the conversation is happening on Zoom. You know, everything is coming through the same ear. Uh, uh, into my head, and I, you know, if I could separate one ear from the other, or uh, I could better sort of separate those different audio feeds to be able to, you know, access the data that I need, the, the document that I need, uh, sort of toggle around within the Zoom environment to do something differently, 
while still listening to the others or the hardest thing sometimes is to hear the the screen reader interface over the the uh, the chatter of all the other people so that can be a real frustration yeah we we had another interviewee come on a few days ago his name was Timothy Vernon he used a headset where it would play his screen reader through one side of his ear and the voices of the people on Zoom or whoever he was communicating with on the other side. Do you think that's something that would help you or maybe you need currently? Yeah, that's something I need. And I, I figure I could do a, uh, you know, have the, have one interface. I could call into Zoom from my phone and have that for the video and for the, for the communication and then use one ear for that and then use a different headset, different earpiece uh, to be connected straight into my computer to access things there. I just seldomly get that organized to pull it off. I'm not sure exactly how this that other guy was doing that uh, or if he was doing it basically using that same strategy. Now, that was my final question. <laughs> so I, I will say thank you for showing up and answering all of them you answered all of them fully i i learned so much about you and how amazing you are and it you know i, I don't want to go i, I don't want to use the same adjective too much because i don't want it to seem disingenuous but you truly are remarkable i will say that all right thanks so much Welcome back to Vision Toward Success. My name is David Gonzalez, and we are here with Chris Downey, an architect who was totally blind, yet found his way into the architectural community. We will be discussing the relation between accessibility and how it plays a big role in his profession. Chris's career has led him to travel not only across the United States, but to several other countries as well. He discussed the differences in accessible design that he observed in other countries and compared these to design elements in the United States. Experiencing these differences through travel has allowed Chris to expand his ideas on what makes good design for people with disabilities. Chris discusses how not much professional training is available for certain environments for people who are visually impaired and totally blind. Good design is beneficial, but having good skill and training plays a big role as well. In general, you know, I think that visual impairment, blindness, it comes with an interesting degree of responsibility to get the training you need. So that's important on yourself to have that realization. But then it's also important to have good training, and that's not always available, uh, every, depending on where you are. And it's also important what kind of environment you live in. So much of the United States is suburban, and all so much of the U U.S. retail environment is strip malls. And to, in my mind, those things are inherently suboptimal for the blind experience. You know, uh, and it's hard to get around those environments. Uh, and if you are designing an environment 
for the blind and visually impaired or if you're designing a community or a city uh, and really thinking hard about the blind experience, I don't think those environments would exist. And I think it would be very different. And ultimately, I think it'd be a better environment for everybody. As Chris was discussing universal design in relation to the ADA, universal design focuses on environments to be accessible to all people, regardless of a disability or not. When discussing architectural design and creating spaces usable for people of all abilities, it is important to understand the role of the Americans with Disabilities Act, founded in 1990. The Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities, which involves transportation, employment, communication, and accommodations. Inclusive design focuses on a design process in which a product, for example, can be used by as many people in a space as possible with no negative adaptations. This means fairness and equality toward environmental growth. Chris also mentions buildings that have been grandfathered in, which means historical and traditional buildings and how they are not as accessible as they should be. Part of it is just turning it around, you know, making disability real, making disability normal, uh, making disability impairments just a part of life. And uh, on a commercial level, in the business world, sometimes it's, it's about increasing your market. I heard a story on NPR this morning about historic uh, theaters, uh, cinematic theaters, through COVID, taking the time to make their theaters more uh, accessible, uh, increase, you know, putting in accessible bathrooms, doing all sorts of things. They had the downtime to be able to do it, and some were doing it. And, uh, and the comments were, there, you know, that's, it's increasing our market. It's increasing our audience. We need to bring more people in. Often those historical buildings and even there's, there's uh, sort of set-asides in uh, ADA that if it, uh, with existing buildings pre-ADA, if it's not feasible, if you can demonstrate that it's not feasible, then you can uh, you have some more lay leeway uh, to not do the accessibility, or if you're in a historic structure, to to weigh off the historical significance of the building, the environment, to you know to get some exception from the accessibility regulations. Uh, so all that there you know. A lot of that is sort of built on that logic of finding ways to say no, finding ways to get out of it, and the need to f turn that mindset towards finding creative ways to do both, to, to res respect the historical nature of a space, yet provide the accessibility, uh, or, and to even in a non-historic building to uh, find ways to uh, have a positive impact to make it more accessible to increase the public that can use your store, use, come visit your theater to increase the, the uh, you know, your market share for your business. The more people we have receptive toward universal design, the more accessible buildings can be for everyone, as well as a mutual understanding toward people who do or don't have a disability. Having more people in the room who are disabled 
can bring that human element to life. Chris has related working creatively in the mind and in your own space, thinking inclusively about architecture. Chris has also discussed how he has grown over time as an architect through vision loss. Chris discusses the perception on how people in different environments treat people who have a disability and excluding you, which leads him to emphasizing on how historical environments should really be accessible. One thing I try to do in that space is to turn that around on them and say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that your, your creativity is so inferior. You can't work creatively within the parameters of, the, of reality of what you know of gravity of all these things that you can't you have to incorporate them you have to work with those things to have to create architecture and so it's all about you know can you be creative about that what it says is it sort of gets in the way of those predisposed notions of what this thing you'd like it to be because your mind isn't thinking in an inclusive way in the initial thought you might have for the space it is not realized how people with disability have as much say as someone without a disability, but it is not agreed upon as it should be as well. Having someone with a disability present changes the way certain people think, which it shouldn't. They matter just as much as any person in the room. Having more people with disabilities who will join this type of work may change people's perception on this view. That gets me back to sort of the original thread of having more people with disabilities in those professions. For me now, when I go into a, into a, a meeting with a client and I need to talk about accessibility, it's a different conversation when you're having that conversation with someone with a disability. I hear it all the time. In California, we have certified access specialists that you have to get trained, you have to pass a rigorous exam, uh, you have to do certain levels of disability, of uh, uh, continued training, uh, education in the area of disability, and and even they will say that having someone there with them, if they don't have a disability, having someone with a disability takes it from the abstract, takes it from the code to that person right there with you at that moment, and you're going to tell them they don't matter. Uh, it's like, come on. You know, that's, you know, few are that cold hearted to just dismiss it uh, when disability is in the room. Uh, so a big part of it is, you know, getting to a critical mass of the environment where you can realize that it's not the disability that's the problem. It's the barriers that are historically uh, um, codified or built into the environment. So it's not the disability that keeps people from being included or getting them into the store or into the theater. It's, it's bad decisions, someone else's decisions, whether it's because uh, it's pre-ADA pre or just because it was built wrong, that somebody made a decision that excluded you. It's a human decision. Chris dives into ocular centrism, which means how vision is the strongest sense in this profession but addresses seeing beyond the eyes and appreciating awareness. Chris has a steady mindset in his creation. And while he is seeing beyond the eyes, that always has motivated him to keep going with his profession. 
While discussing mindset and seeing beyond the eyes, Chris discusses The Eyes of the Skin by Jahani Palasma. This book describes architectural theory focused on one sense, sight, and how that plays a big role in his creation. A book uh, written by a, a Finnish architect uh, called uh, Eyes of the Skin by Joani Palasma. And in it, he makes an argument that the architectural profession uh, has been, has become uh, over, uh, inappropriately ocular centric, that it's all about the eyes. Uh, and, and so, and as he sort of alludes to in the title of the book, Eyes of the Skin, it's about seeing with more than your eyes. It's about really having a different kind of environment, sort of awareness of, of the environment. So that to me is an important thing for architects to, to read. And it's a fairly well embraced book in philosophy uh, for architecture. Uh, I think just identifying that ocular centrism is an important thing for us, for anyone to think about how much, how often we just assume the availability of sight. And if that's the norm, if that's the way you approach everything, then you're going to be leaving a lot of people out. So it's a good, good critique on that ocular centrism. We'd like to take the time to thank Chris for being here with us today. Thank you for tuning into Vision Toward Success with your host, David Gonzalez, and our guest, Chris Downey. You can reach Chris Downey at chris.downey at arcforblind.com, which is spelled C-H-R-I-S dot D-O-W-N-E-Y at A-R-C-H four as in number four B-L-I-N-D dot com. And now, a blindness tip from Chris Downey. Maybe it's uh, thinking about our struggles culturally today uh, and, and the idea of empathy, to be able to imagine being somebody else. Uh, I often talk about my uh, sort of uh, this transition from being sighted to being not sighted to, especially as an architect, I think of my sighted, unsighted persona as an avatar, as someone that it's part of a sort of empathetic experience. I can't not think as a visual architect. I'm trained that way, but I have this vehicle of, of you know, walking behind eyes that don't ski, don't see. And, and it's sort of a, this extraordinary empathetic experience. And it's really reinforced that thing about really thinking deeply even if you can't put yourself in somebody else, but you can really try to do that. And in the experience of doing that, that experience of having that empathetic experience of, of really struggling hard to understand it for what it is, as opposed to what you think it is, or just imagining it through your own experience, that you know, I think we could all spend benefit from spending a little bit more time in that seriously thoughtful place of, of uh, empathy, of, of thinking about the other experience. Thank you for tuning in to Vision Toward Success. 
This program has been recorded and produced by Elena Regan and David Gonzalez from the Tradeswin Audio Podcast Team in association with the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. Funding for this program has been provided by the Libby Duvon Award from the Fielding Institute, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and the Barry Savings Foundation. Additional episodes of this podcast can be found at www.polacenter.org backslash tradeswin or wherever you get your podcasts.